Welcome, uh, Southwest, to our second day of Fall Focus. And once again, I'm excited to have Keith Farron with us, guys and gals. And I'm really, really hopeful that you can um, open your minds, open your hearts, what God would have to share with you, uh, that all of us would be receptive um, to the idea. I know, guys and gals, we're in all different spots when it comes to um, reading Scripture. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled, and I know that I already have been blessed on Wednesday by hearing a little bit about uh, Keith Farron and some of his tips for like how to... Um, some of them may be reminders that you've heard before, uh, a lot of it new ideas for like how to enjoy reading Scripture. Keith, uh, once again, is an international speaker who uh, travels to churches, universities, school settings like ours, trying to inspire others with what he himself has been inspired by to enjoy Scripture. He also believes uh, deeply that ice cream and coffee are proof that God loves us very much. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll welcome Keith Farron once again. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I thank you so much for Keith, for his heart, for who he is. Thank you that he has um, been willing to come alongside of us this week, and just ask and pray that this morning your spirit would rest over um, our auditorium and the gym, over our school. God, we need you. We need your word. We need truth uh, in the middle of so many uh, lies and so many messages. We need to know what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is right, what is just. And we need guidance from outside our own emotions and feelings. Um, God, we desperately, desperately need you. Please visit with us and counter us this morning so that we would lean more heavily into dependence on you, dependence on the guidance that comes from your scriptures. God, I pray that if there's any resistance in us, um, just when we hear the word Bible, when we hear scripture, I just pray you'd remove that. I pray for all the biases and predispositions and suppositions we have, God, that you would give um, us clear minds to listen to you, fresh hearts and fresh minds this morning. We pray this, asking in the end that you would be pleased with the meditation of our hearts and the words that Keith shares uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome Keith once again. All right. So completely unrelated piece of trivia. Uh, he, he mentioned that this was a long title to the song. Does anybody know the longest title to any song? World record holder, longest title of any song. Anybody know it? little piece of trivia. Okay, I'm expecting you to memorize this because I memorized it when I was about your age because it's from a band called Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd wrote a song on the extended album of Dark Side of the Moon and the title of the song is Several Different Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together in a Cave and Grooving with a Pict. No joke, that's the name of the song. <laughs> and forever people have asked them what a Pict was P-I-C-T, grooving with a pict, and they would nobody in the band would ever reveal it, and so nobody actually knows what the small furry animals were grooving with, a pict. So there you go. There's your uh, piece of trivia. You can look it up. I'm not lying. Uh, longest song in history. Song title. So yesterday we looked at uh, a few of these these tips for moving from should to want. We looked at a couple that were mindset things, reading the Bible relationally rather than reading the Bible informationally. And we looked at having a strategy, recognizing that there's a defense there and having a strategy for beating the defense. And then I, I mentioned that, that, that we, when we move to having the Bible, when we actually have our Bible in our hands, what do we do? Do we ever read the Bible and study the Bible in the way that God is naturally and enjoyably wired our brains to learn anything, which is from the general to the specific. And so we ended by talking about reading more. When you, when you read more, your brain kicks into that natural storytelling mode where you start to see the characters and hear their voices and all that, which another benefit of reading more and having your brain in that space when you're reading is that all of the Bible doesn't sound exactly the same. That I find that, for me, the first 25 years I was a Christian, when I would read the Bible, 
no matter what part of the Bible I was reading, it would just kind of, the silent voice in my head was still the same kind of monotone voice that would just read all of the Bible. But here's the deal. If you read Philippians and you read Galatians and they sound the same in your head, you're reading incorrectly. Yes, they're both letters. Yes, they're both written by the Apostle Paul. Yes, they're about the same length. Galatians is a little longer. Yes, they're both in the same section of your Bible. Yes, they both have a little greeting at the top. But the very first thing he says in Philippians, the out the gate, right after the greeting, the first thing he says is, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in your, my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right? Group hug. Come on. <laughs> Philippians. Well, Galatians, right after the greeting, the very first thing he says, the very first thing, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing me into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? (laughs) If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I don't want that letter. (laughs) I mean, you read Philippians, you should feel like you've been hugged. You read Galatians, you should be a little sore. (laughs) But we read these little bits. Our brains never get into that. And there's this little guy that reads our Bible for us in our brains. You know who I'm talking about? Mr. Monotone. Do you know him? Does he ever read your Bible for you? Okay, here's Philippians. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Oh, he said gospel twice. I should probably look that up. <laughs> and all of it sounds the same. When we read more, we naturally... Get away from that. And a couple times yesterday, I said something about when you you know reading Philippians or something is if you read it out. I, I've mentioned if you if you read it out loud at a normal rate of speed. Another tip: if you want to if you want to have kind of part of the strategy of beating the defense, kind of when you have your Bible open, part of that strategy, I encourage you read out loud. Read out loud. I become such a firm believer in reading out loud that pretty much the only time I don't read out loud is if I'm in a situation where I'd be bothering somebody. Right? If I'm sitting in a coffee shop or I'm on an airplane, I'll read silently. I once shared that and somebody yelled out, dude, you're on a plane. What are they going to do? Ask you to step outside? Go ahead, read out loud. <laughs> Captive audience. Whatever. Maybe I'll try that this afternoon when I'm flying back to Seattle. But, uh, but other than that, I, I find that when you read out loud, you naturally read with more emotion. And, I mean, I tell people, read the Bible like you're reading Curious George to a five-year-old and watch what happens. And in fact, if you, I, I encourage people, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, do an accent. Why not? I mean, it was originally Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, so anytime that you're reading it, you're giving them an accent anyway. Why give them a boring one? Read out loud. When you read out loud, you'll also remember more. What you see 
versus what you hear, versus what you see and hear, even if what you hear is your own voice, if you want to internalize it so that God can actually use his word hidden in you to transform you to be more like Jesus, man, the easiest thing you can do is read out loud. So read more, read out loud. Read, and I know this is a big one, but when you're doing this kind of watch the movie part, when you're just reading, grab a physical Bible. If you struggle with your mind wandering when you read the Bible, the, the, the simplest way to, to combat that, the simplest thing that you can do is to grab a physical Bible. Because while I don't have my phone on me right now, if I had to pretend I've got a phone on my hand, there, there is nothing more distracting than holding something in your hand that can do a thousand things. And on the flip side of that, there's nothing that will help you focus more than holding something in your hand that, will, that can only do one. That even if you turn off your notifications and you put it in do not disturb and you do all that, there is, there is never a time that I read the Bible on my phone or my tablet that at some point in my reading, I don't think about something, even if I don't go do it right then, even if I don't go onto social media, I don't check that notification, I don't text somebody, I don't send an email. There's never a time that I am reading the Bible on my phone that I don't think about something else that I'm going to do after. There are many times when I'm reading this that I don't think about the post that I need to do or the text I need to send. Or I'm not saying I never do. But, man, and the other, the other beautiful thing, when you're, if you're talking about remembering it, if you're talking about hiding God's word, not just in your head but in your heart and remembering, part of the way that, again, God's wired our brains is not only to see this big picture and the big picture to the little picture, but our brains love associations. And when you read a physical Bible, when you read a physical Bible, you'll burn, and you read it again and again, your brain will start to remember where on the page things are. And, the, and the, that can't happen with a digital Bible that you're scrolling through. There is no association because it's sliding through. So, so a whole piece of how memory in the brain works can't be tapped into. But for example, like I just opened up, and this is John 6. Did you know that no matter how many times I close and open this Bible, John 6 is going to stay right there every time. Watch. Right there. See? I, every time. And so if, I, if you took that Bible and you read John 10 or 15 times, you would always remember exactly what was in John 6 because your brain would see this big, bold 6 that's 10 times the font size and more bold, and you'd remember what was after it between the 6 and the 7. And you start to remember where things were without really adding anything. And the, when it comes to memory again, not only do we need to read more, Read a physical Bible. Read, and I'm not saying when I, I want to. I want to have a caveat there. I'm not saying never have a digital Bible. I mean, I actually used a digital Bible to look something up this morning when I didn't have my physical Bible right there with me. I, I mean, I've got the apps on, and I, I when you're looking at a different translation, when you're trying to look for an audio Bible, something like that. I mean, I'm a fan of having all those different things. But when you're in that kind of watch the movie stage, when you're just wanting to read and connect and actually be able to focus, man, a physical Bible is the way to go. And if you want to remember it, if you actually want to internalize Scripture, then stay in one place. Read a big chunk, but then read that same big chunk again. If you're taking Philippians or Ephesians or 2 Timothy or Galatians, something that you can read out loud at a normal rate of speed, in 20 minutes or less. My general rule for a short book of the Bible is 30 times in 30 days. You take 2 Timothy or Philippians or Ephesians, you read it every day for the next month, and you will be blown away at how much of it you know word for word without ever trying. And you know that to be true. How, how many of you have songs you haven't heard in five years that if they came on the radio, you'd be singing along by line two? 
right? Did you try to memorize it? No, you just heard it over and over again. And you didn't just hear the first verse and listen to the first verse over and over again until you had it, and then you listened to the second verse. You just heard the song, and after a couple times, you realized that you were singing along with the chorus because you'd heard that four times as much as the rest of it, and then you started realizing that you were singing along. Anybody have some funny movie lines that you could quote? Right? I'm g- <laughs> did you, when you heard that funny movie line and you thought, okay, I'm going to quote that probably later, did you write that down on a note card and tape it to your mirror? No? <laughs> really? Why? I, how in the world did you ever learn it then? <laughs> you watched the movie over and over. There, there are so many things that we have learned because we have seen them in the big picture and we have seen them over and over again. Now, I know that I'm talking to an audience that's a few decades younger than I am, uh, which is just scary to just say that out loud. I just need a moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to say the first half of a sentence, and I want to see if in this room, somebody in the, in the gym can yell it out if you want, but I want to see if there's at least one person in this room that can say the second half of the sentence. I'm going to say the first half of a sentence, and I want to see if you can tell me the second half. Okay? Here we go. You ready? Just, if you know this, how this sentence should be finished, I just want you to shout it out. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Okay. So... How is it, let me, let me just ask you this, how is it that not only did many of you quote that back word for word, but I did hear a few of you use an accent, <laughs> right? Why? Because our brains learn in the context of story by the process of repetition, Say that again. Our brains learn in the context of story by the process of repetition. And some of you, kind of to reemphasize how much that read more, the big story, how much that makes it stick, some of you, ever since I said the first half of that sentence, you haven't heard a word I said because you're picturing the guy running through the house chasing the other guy and do you have six fingers on your right hand? You know, I mean, you've kind of entered into that story. But I'm guessing that when you heard that, I'm guessing there's nobody in here who has ever written that down in an attempt to memorize it. People tell me all the time, oh, I can't memorize anything. I can't remember my own phone number. And I'm like, you know, thousands upon thousands of song lyrics, of movie lines, of detailed pieces of information, but you learn them from the general to the specific. If I gave you the script to The Princess Bride and said, memorize that, you would work forever trying to memorize it. But if I said, hey, for the next two weeks, I want you to watch The Princess Bride every day, most of you would have most of it down word for word without ever trying because you're lining it up with how your brain works. And there are two final tips that I want to give when it comes to how to enjoy reading your Bible. I was just talking to somebody earlier this morning and saying, one of the reasons that I actually love talking to teenagers is that I get to say some things that I wish somebody would have told me when I was your age. When I was, when I was your age, people told me that the Bible was true and that I should read it. Nobody ever told me the Bible was awesome. And it's awesome. But it's not awesome when the only reason we're going to it is for a little informational detail or a li- one single life application point or just to memorize it because we've been assigned to memorize it. It's really hard to have the Bible be awesome when that's our only approach to the Bible. When we're reading it and we feel like we're connecting with God and we're hearing his heart and we're being reminded in a world of loud lies what is true. You know, My kids are 12 and 16 and 18. I'm talking to them about this all the time, and I'm saying, I don't go to the Bible just to learn stuff anymore. I know plenty. Not that I don't learn things, but the main reason I go to the Bible is to hang out with Jesus. The second reason that I go to the Bible is to be reminded 
because I forget what is true because I'm surrounded by so many loud lies. I mean, you can't open up social media. You can't turn on the TV or the radio without hearing something about who you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to look like or what you deserve to have or whatever. Right? And it's, the lies are just getting louder and louder. And as you've seen in our country in the last I mean, ever since you guys were old enough to be kind of aware of what the adults were doing, we've just gotten more and more divisive, more and more ugly with the way we talk to each other. Fifteen minutes into the presidential debate, just on a side, just 15 minutes into the presidential debate, my wife and I turned it off and apologized to our children. Like legitimately not as a joke. Apologized on behalf of the adults in this, what, what we are leaving for you guys. It's insane. The way that we talk to each other, the way that, and there's, there's just so much loud ugliness and divisiveness and lies that are permeating that I want you guys to soak in the word, not just so that you can learn how to live. I want you to soak in the word so that you're reminded of something that is good and true and reminded of who you are and reminded that you are known and redeemed and loved and wanted and restored and forgiven and that you are a child and that you... That, you were chosen before the creation of the world. I want you to know that. If you struggle with any of that, with any of that identity piece, I want you to read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. The beautiful thing about the book of Ephesians is chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's nothing to do. All of the practical stuff on marriage and family and work and sex and our language and spiritual warfare and prayer and all of that, all of that is in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 has more than 30 different identity messages about who you are. The only thing he says to do in all of chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to remember. That's it. There's nothing else he says to do. But you are reminded from verse 3, right after the greeting, from verse 3, you are chosen. Yes, you are redeemed. Yes, you are restored. Yes, you are a child. Yes, you are part of something bigger. Yes, you are part of God's eternal purpose. Yes, you are part of the church. You are, you are, you are, you are. And we need to be reminded of who we are. Because I don't want you to just live lives that are moral. I want you to live your life of faith out of a place of identity, not a place of morality. And we do that when we soak in the word, when we let his truth saturate us. And some of how we do that is reading relationally. Some of how we do that is recognizing the defense. Some of how we do that is reading more, reading a physical Bible, reading out loud, reading it again and again. And also, are there any, any of you who have a study Bible that have more notes on the page than actual scripture? Anybody have one of those? <laughs> you know? And uh, when you're initially entering into a passage of Scripture, don't start with your study Bible. The next tip I would give you is we need to read alone, meaning just you and God and His Word. I, I'm, I'm, I, I call myself a recovering ping-pong reader. You know, here's how you can know whether you're a ping-pong reader, too. If you open your study Bible and you're reading Scripture and you come across a bold letter A... Do you feel a moral obligation to go down to the bottom of the page and figure out what it actually says? And then go pong back up to the top and then read, oh, there's a B, ping down to the bottom, pong back up to the top. And I mean, it's, it's so brutally hard for me not to that I had to get another Bible that has almost no notes in it, no maps, no charts, no word studies, no nothing. I have a study Bible and I use it for the studying the scenes after I've watched the movie. I believe the deep... Verse-by-verse verse study of Scripture is massively important. It's just not the starting place. When you're at that starting place where you're watching the movie, where you're laying that foundation, we need to read alone. Because when we don't read alone, there are a couple things that happen. One, from again, how our brains work, if Every single time you read Scripture, you read some explanation of Scripture, you read some commentary, you read some study notes, you read something else that was written that isn't the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. If every time you read Scripture, you also read something else, your brain does not distinguish from an authority standpoint what is Scripture and what is commentary. That's dangerous. 
because we give equal weight to our favorite devotional author, to our favorite commentary writer, to our favorite study guide, study Bible notes. We give equal weight to that as we give to Scripture, and that's dangerous. The second thing that happens is we subtly believe, start to believe the lie. I can't understand the Bible unless somebody explains it to me. And I believe that grieves the heart of God. Are there confusing things in Scripture? Yes. Are there some traditions and some different customs, things that we need to look up? Yes. Are there some things that we need some explanations of? Yep. Sure. But not most of it. I believe that a vast majority of what is in this book can be understood by the average fifth grader. Not everything, but a vast majority can. And I think that when we start to believe the lie, I can't understand the Bible unless somebody explains it to me, I think that grieves the heart of God. Because a couple thousand years ago when Father, Son, Holy Spirit were having a conversation and God the Father said, hey, I think we need to give our kids a relationship guide. I don't think that one of the other two piped up and said, okay, I totally agree, but we need to make it as boring and confusing as possible. Let's make sure that. That's, <laughs> that does not fit with the character of the God that we worship. So we need to read alone. And the last piece of this kind of tips piece is don't read alone. <laughs> and here's what I mean by don't read alone. If you really want to start to understand and enjoy the Bible more than you ever thought possible, you need to have people that you get together with that you just talk about it with. And it doesn't mean that you're all studying the exact same thing and you're all answering the same questions and you just have these questions as a guide. That can be helpful. But I can tell you that some of the most fruitful conversations I ever had have had about the Word were times when people are reading at different spots in the Bible, and I get together with them at a coffee shop, and, we, and the, whole, the only question that guides our conversation is, what conversations did you and God have this week as you were reading the Word? Because that opens up the door for people to say, oh, I saw this and I never noticed that before, or this was really confusing to me, or I've got a question about this, or man, I really, he corrected my thinking on this, or man, this was really comforting, or whatever. You can go a whole lot of different places. Anything that we talk about, we get more interested in. Right. I, I love to watch football. I, I, I love to follow it. I love following the Seahawks. That's my team. Sorry. Um, I hear we're playing the Vikings this weekend. Is that true? I think, yeah. So I'm glad I'm not here next week. Um, but I love, I love watching football. But here's the deal. While occasionally I'll watch a game on my own, and I can enjoy watching a game on my own, I certainly enjoy it a lot more if I can be talking about it with somebody. And even if I've watched it on my own, I like to talk about it with somebody afterwards. I mean, think of whatever sport it is that you like to watch or whatever it is that you like to participate in. Even if you like to do it on your own, could you imagine never, ever being able to talk about the game with anybody else? This was something you were only going to do. Because so many people, when it comes to the Bible... You know, you might have class or something like that where you're discussing some certain point, but when it comes to your own reading, people talk about, I've got my own personal quiet time, and we never talk about that, we never have conversations about that, and we wonder why we can't be consistent for the long haul. Well, if my only experience with watching football could only be, I could only watch it by myself, I could never talk about it with anybody, I could never watch it with anybody, and oh, by the way, because this is just my own personal deal, I can't hear what the commentators are saying, so I can only watch it muted. It wouldn't take very long before I wasn't reading the, before I wasn't watching football anymore. And I think the, the same thing. When you read it and discuss it with other people and just say, so what, what stood out to you? What questions do you have? And just let the questions be simple that guide it. You'll end up 
reading more consistently just from the accountability standpoint of not wanting to show up next week and not have anything to say. You'll also encourage one another. You'll see some things that, that, I, that I don't see and I'll see some things that you don't see. When you're having a particular couple weeks where you're just really, the Bible just feels dry to you, somebody else's excitement about what they just saw is going to help get you out of that. People ask me, how do I get out of the rut of not really being consistent in Bible reading? I'm like, other than changing your mindset to relational, there is nothing that I can say that will encourage you more in getting out of a rut than than ask three friends, hey, can we get together once a week and just talk about whatever we've read? That is the fastest way to get out of a rut. If you want to enjoy the Bible more than you ever thought possible, read relationally. Recognize that there is somebody playing defense. Have a strategy for beating that defense. Read more. Read a physical Bible. Read out loud. Read it again. Read alone. And whatever you do, don't read alone. (laughs) And you'll start to see some things waking up in you, some fire being lit. And in case you just think this is kind of this, this old folk thing, I, I remember one time I got an email from, from this, this gal. And she said, hey, uh, the, the email said, hey, I, I saw you speak on, on enjoying the Bible and how to study the Bible a while back, and I just wanted to send you an email to let you know that I internalized Philippians, that I, read, I took your advice, I read Philippians for 30 days, then I studied it verse by verse kind of for another 30 days, and I just wanted to let you know I've got the whole thing down, the whole Philippians is part of it, and now my family and I are going to start looking at Ephesians together. And so I replied, her name was Holly, and I said, hey Holly, that's awesome, I uh, when you know, because at the time this was this was almost twenty years ago, so I didn't have kids. I certainly didn't have older kids, and um, and I said, hey, I haven't really had much experience with doing this with kids. Can you tell me how this goes as you do this as a family, as you do this with your family? And she said, she emailed me back the next day and said, I am the kid. She said, I'm 16. I was part of that youth group that you spoke at three months ago, and then a few months later. She said, I just got done with Ephesians. I think I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do right now, but I'm going to I'm going to have to do something different. I'm on Paul overload right now. <laughs> and this gal is still now, as she's in her early 30s, is walking with the Lord, and her time in the Word is vibrant. It, it, it can happen for you too. And it's not just something for later. That's what I always thought. When I was in middle school and somebody started talking to me about a quiet time, I thought maybe when I get to high school, youth group starts to talk about it more. Maybe I'll like it then, and I didn't like it in high school. And somebody, then I thought, well, maybe when I get to college and I become a deep thinker, maybe I'll like it more, and I didn't like it then either. Afterwards, then I became a youth pastor. And as I told you the story yesterday, it wasn't until halfway through being a youth pastor that I had this conversation with this guy on April 18th of 93. Well, it was April 19th that I had the conversation. And something was awakened. And that's my prayer is that something is awakened in you so that the Bible doesn't just sound like Mr. Monotone reading it in your head, but it sounds a little bit different. And so looking at some, I want to just shift gears a little bit for, for 20 minutes or so and look at some of Scripture. A couple of my favorite parts. We're not going to obviously walk through the whole Gospel of John. We don't have two hours. But when I look at some of these elements. You heard the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John yesterday. There's a part in chapter 2 where he says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus replied, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, 
draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? He replied, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. He would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Amen? So that's John 2. And I I love John 2 for many, many reasons. One, I just think that I, I just love this story about, one, the first miracle Jesus ever does is so that a party can continue. I think that should show us something about the heart of Jesus, that celebration and joy and life should be fun. And I look at, I look at that, but I just the interaction with his mother, I'm just like... <laughs> Anybody have a mother that can kind of give you the look and you'll be like, all right, whatever. You know, and I just kind of see this interaction between Jesus that this is the first, Jesus has not been going around performing miracles. It's not like his mother's been like, hey, you've been doing this a lot. Can you just help these people out? It's like nothing's happened yet. And he's like, my time has not yet come. The, The God of all creation has just told Mary, it's not my time yet. And she's like, Want to bet? You know? <laughs> and she tells Jesus, she tells these servants, do whatever he tells you. And so then they fill 26, 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking 120 to 180 gallons of hand washing water. I don't, I don't know about you. When I hear this story, the people that I'm thinking about are the servants. Because the servants, they're told to fill this up, and they're like, okay, we'll go fill this up. Being told what to do, that's no big deal. They've been told what to do all the time. But could you imagine being the servant who is asked to take a scoop of hand-washing water and take it to the most stressed-out person at the party? Because the master of the banquet was the one that was supposed to keep everything running, the one who was supposed to make sure that everything was good, the one who was supposed to be in the know about everything. And so as wine is running out, because a wedding, Jewish wedding was a six to seven day festival. It was a a a week-long party. You know, I have a hard time sitting through an hour and a half wedding, but whatever. And, uh, but they would have this whole big celebration. And so they're running out. And Jesus tells the servants, draw out some of the hand-washing water in a cup and take it to that guy and hand it to him. I'm thinking this 
servant that's walked, because it, it never, ever tells us when it turns into wine. It doesn't say, fill it up and I'll turn it into wine. It doesn't say when they filled it, so they filled it to the brim and it turned into wine. He just says, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And I'm picturing this guy going, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. This guy's going to kill me. This guy's going to kill me. Oh, purple, right? <laughs> and he hands it to this guy because there's this one little line in here that John puts. He hands it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet tastes it. And John points out, he other than the bride and groom, the most important person in the room, had no clue what was going on. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. When I read this story in John 2, I'm reminded that the people who feel like they're the least important are the people that Jesus says, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm letting you in. You may feel out, but you're in when it comes to me. The very first miracle he ever performs, the people that he lets in it are the people who it was their job to not get noticed. It was their job to disappear, to be in the background, to make sure things get taken care of, and he lets them on in on the secret. And then he goes up to Jerusalem, and, it, and you see, whenever, whenever I see... Um, People like on the streets and stuff with the big signs that says, you know, God hates this, God hates that, repent or go to hell. You know, I mean, you've, you've seen the people on, this, on the street corners and stuff like that. And the people that on social media will just vent their opinions about everything. I just look at scripture and I'm like, you do realize that the people that Jesus got mad at were the church people. You don't see Jesus getting mad at the regular people and yelling at them. Jesus never shamed anybody into the kingdom. You know, we don't see that. And uh, in fact, I just, <laughs> this idea of, of people who are keeping other people away, you look at the end of chapter two and you just see Jesus' heart for don't do anything that is going to keep somebody away from worshiping me, from worshiping my Father, from being in his presence. Don't be doing something that is dividing. And I got I to tell you, there was, there was actually a time when, uh, when I, I lost it a little bit. Um, I was a little bit older than you guys. I was a sophomore in college, and I studied abroad in France. And I, during, and for, during that semester, we had, it was spring, so we had spring break in there. And for spring break, there were four of us from our group of 19. There were four of us that took off and went to see England and um, Scotland. We wanted to f see if we could find Loch, you know, Nessie at Loch Ness, and we didn't. I was bummed about that. But then we went back to London. And has, has anybody ever been to London? Anybody ever been to Hyde Park? Been to Hyde Park. It's where they have, they, they call it Speaker's Corner. And have you ever heard that phrase, somebody's getting on their soapbox or telling somebody get off their soapbox? Well, that's actually where that came from because it literally is a place where you can have people standing all over and they used to stand on, now they have stools and different things like that, but it used to be they would literally stand on a box so that a crowd could hear them and they would talk about anything. It could be politics, it could be religion, it could be anything that you, that you wanted, social justice, it could be any of that kind of thing. And so here I was going, walking through here and I'm hearing all these people and some of the things I'm hearing, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is insane. And there are just hundreds and hundreds of people all spread throughout this one corner of Hyde Park. And at one point I see this guy that has a sweater on who's standing up on a platform and embroidered into his sweater, it says, Jesus is Lord. And he's got this big crowd around him. It's, I mean, honestly, he's got probably 150 people or so that are into this corner. And we're walking by behind. So we're standing at the back of this corner. And I'm like, hey, let's stop. I, so two of the guys had taken off. I was standing there with a, a gal that was traveling with us. And she and I were standing. I'm like, hey, let's listen to what the Jesus is Lord guy has to say. And we listen. And, and he's standing up. 
And he'll look at somebody and he goes, you're going to hell. And they go, no, I'm not. He's like, have you ever spoken in tongues? No. Well, the Bible says you can, so you're going to hell. And then he would look at the next person, you're going to hell. And they would go through this whole thing over and over again. And I'm just going, is this really, I'm asking this gal, I'm like, is this helping anybody? Is it, nobody's really responding really well to this. This seems to be going nowhere. And then there was this guy standing there and he starts in on the same thing. You're going to hell. And he says, no, I'm not. I really love Jesus. And he said, have you ever spoken in tongues? He's like, no, I'd, I'd love to, but I haven't been given that gift. I don't, I don't speak in tongues. And the guy says, well, then you're going to hell because the Bible says you can. And he says, but I really, really love Jesus. And he pulls out this Bible that he has in his coat. And he says, whenever I'm on the tube, which is the train, he's like, whenever I'm on the tube, I, I bring my Bible with me so I can read about Jesus. And I love Jesus. And no, I don't speak in tongues, but I, I really don't think I'm going to hell. And he says, well, you're not doing everything the Bible says, so you're going to hell. And I'm just like, I'm just going. And finally, I just, I, I don't know what came over me, but I'm standing in the back of this group, and I just yelled out, I don't think he's going to hell. <laughs> and no, I mean, the, the whole place did one of these, you know, everything pause, and, and no joke, this guy stops looking at this guy, and he looks at me and does one of these. Oh, it looks like the Americans got something to say. And, and, and the, the Red Sea parted, right? <laughs> and I honestly, truly, I do not remember walking up the 30 feet or whatever it is, but I remember standing, and so he's looking down on me, and I said, I really don't think this guy's going to hell. And he, said, and he said, he doesn't speak in tongues. And I said, but that, that's, that's not it. I said, here's the deal. It's not that I don't believe in tongues or I don't believe in hell or I don't believe. I, I, he said, but if your starting point is any place other than the God who created you loves you so much that he would rather die for you than live without you, you're simply starting in the wrong place. And then he paused for a second. The whole crowd was like, <laughs> and then he looks at me and he goes, you're going to hell. I said, I'm not going to hell. He says, have you ever spoken in tongues? And the gal who was with me goes, yes, he has. And I went, I looked at her and she goes, I've heard you speak French. And I went, all right, I'm in. That's good. And then I don't know where this came from, but my response to that after I kind of nodded at her, I said, have you ever raised anybody from the dead? And he said, no. I said, well, Jesus did. And he said, greater things than I have done will you do. So what's going on? And he said, you're right, it does say that. I will raise someone from the dead. <laughs> I went, I'm like, really? Can, can I come? I mean, <laughs> I'd like And then and, and I, I finally just put up my hand. I said, I'll be praying for you. And he actually shook my hand, shockingly. And I walked off, and we're, we're walking off. And I said to the guy, I said, did that really just happen? She's like, yeah, totally. And, I, <laughs> and as we're walking away, we're probably, I don't know, 20, 30 yards away. And I hear this guy that I hadn't seen in the crowd. I, I hear this guy go, excuse me, excuse me. Excuse me. I turn around and there's this guy who's this big burly guy, just got one of those faces and bodies that you just know life has happened to this guy. He just, he looked leathered. He was just, and, and I, and, and he said, do you believe everything you were saying back there? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I believe every, that God loves everyone in that crowd enough to die for them. And he says, okay, then I want you to be praying for me because I just got out of prison this morning and I don't want to go back. And so we knelt down in the middle of Hyde Park and prayed. And I'm like, I think of that story every time I read John 2 and I see Jesus getting so frustrated that these religious people were just simply starting in the wrong place. They're starting with the place of, you need to do this, do that, do this, to be, except to be even able to come in and worship. And Jesus is going to have none of it. And my prayer for you 
is that, is that your time in the word would be time of connection with Jesus, time of knowing that you are known and loved. My life verses are Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, then, as dearly loved children, and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's saying, I don't want you to be imitators of God because it's the right thing to do. I want you to become imitators of God because you are a dearly loved child of his. I want you to live out of that place of identity. Remember that you are a dearly loved child who has been sacrificed for. And live with that kind of freedom, that kind of boldness. One more story and then we'll go. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, he was born blind. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Then he told him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, they demanded, How then were your eyes open? And he said, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. (laughs) He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. And they asked him, Where is this man? And he said, I don't know. (laughs) They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He replied, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, see this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others asked, Can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He replied, he's a prophet. Now the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Um, Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? His parents said, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man said, I have told you already, but you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? At this, they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man replied, Now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, 
you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Amen? It's John 9. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. A story that to me is both challenging, encouraging, and heartbreaking all at the same time. I mean, here's this guy who's sitting on the side of the road, blind, he's been begging. This conversation, the, the disciples weren't actually really being mean. They were, it was assumed in that day and age, it was assumed that any kind of disability was a result of sin. And so you've got the disciples who are like, okay, well, we've got the Son of God with us, so let's clear this up once and for all. Is it his sin or his parents' sin? Who, what, what, whose sin is this? And then Jesus blows that all out of the water and says, it's nobody's sin. I'm, I'm gonna, it's gonna, so that glory can be revealed to him. This guy, other than Jesus' answer, this guy's heard this conversation. This guy's seen people coming by him. He, that doesn't surprise him. Here's what surprises him. <laughs> That's new, right? Jesus makes mud puts it in the guy's eye and then tells him to go wash it off. Check me if I'm wrong. Did they, was there another option? <laughs> I mean, what was the guy going to do? No, I will not wash it off. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. I, he doesn't say, wash it off and you will see. I'm thinking that when that guy walked away from that situation, I'm not convinced he was a big fan of Jesus. Right? Jesus kind of seems to stand up for him, but then he spits on the ground, makes mud, sticks it in the guy's eye, and tells him, go wash it off. The guy walks to the pool of Siloam, and then he washes it off, and all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he can see. And then the insanity begins. Right? Because if you've ever been around anybody who's blind, you know that their sense of smell, their sense of touch, their sense of hearing is heightened. He knows his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him. He recognizes voices and everything. And, he, and they're, they're thinking, oh, he just looks like him. He just looks like him. Come on. And he's like, no, it's me. And they're asking him, well, who did that? Well, this guy named Jesus. He made mud, put it in my eyes, told me to go wash it off. And where is he? I don't know where he is. Right? Because at this point, he's never seen Jesus. He's in the same situation you and I are in. And he says, this is what happened. And then they take him to the church people. Well, surely the church people are going to be blown away and amazed that God could do something this awesome. But no, the church people are concerned that it's happening on the Sabbath and all this kind of stuff. And the church people, for some reason, don't believe God can show up. That's a struggle. That should be pretty much the red flag that, hey, this isn't a good church. And, uh, <laughs> and then they get the parents. This, to me, is the most heartbreaking thing of all. You've got the parents who potentially are seeing their, uh, this kid, is, or this guy now, is seeing his parents for the very first time, potentially. Maybe he saw them earlier in the day, but this is the same. This is, and his parents don't stand up for him. And Everything in his world is going crazy. His neighbors don't stand up for him. The church people don't believe God can show up. And his own parents don't stand up for him. But notice his story is the same. Jesus touched me, and my life is different now. He says it to his neighbors. He says it to the church people, and even in front of his parents. He's like, I don't get it all. I don't have all the answers. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. Here's what I know. This morning, dark. This afternoon, not so much. You don't have to have all the answers. (laughs) You don't have to have it all figured out. But there's somebody, I believe, that needs to hear your story. Whatever your story of Jesus touched me and my life is different now, that's the story somebody needs to hear. Not everybody needs to hear my story. There's somebody out there that needs to hear yours. And I hope that as you soak in the word, Jesus would remind you of your story and you would be bold enough to tell it to somebody who desperately needs to hear it. Lord Jesus, thank you for every student in this room, in the gym, every student at the school. God, I pray that they would fall in love with you through your word and that they would boldly speak of who you are and the goodness of God. 
In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.